Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where today is going to be a very interesting day, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. Um, if you're interested in the last podcast that I did, it was with Caprice Lee. She's an author of two books. Uh, she just came out with her second book. Uh, I don't have it on me. I still need to buy it. Um, it was a fantastic podcast about homeschooling. She does a, a, a deep dive into why public education is failing uh, you know, American kids and how it might be a better choice to homeschool. Now, that's a, a very tough question to ask yourself when it comes to teaching your own kids. But uh, Caprice has a website, caprislee.com. She has a lot of valuable resources on that website to help guide you on that journey with your children and homeschooling them. Uh, today, we're going to have a gentleman who's been on Talk Junkies twice before. Um, he's an author of the book called The School World Order, um, and he's just a fantastic guy. He has a, a lot of wealth of knowledge, uh, and, and not only with his knowledge, he backs it up with references and resources. Uh, he's not really, he looks at it from both sides of the coin, and he's just an honest guy cool guy and I'm glad to have him on. John, thanks for joining, brother. How you doing? All right, man. Thanks for having me back. It's been a while. It has. Thanks for coming on, man. So uh, what's been going on lately with you, man? I don't know if you want to get into that at all or if you just want to hit the podcast or just, uh, I know, I think the last time we had talked, you're not teaching anymore or is that something you're still not doing or? Oh, no, no. I've, I've stayed teaching, uh, but I'm I've stuck online. Uh, you know, I didn't get my jabby. Uh, so one of the things, well, first they grandfathered everybody in because everybody was locked down. So they let everybody go online. And then uh, let's say probably mid 2021 ish. Uh, they started to bring everybody back. And I had a feeling that that was going to uh, dovetail with uh, the issuance of uh, a mandate for the jab, which is what happened. So, uh, so I never went back because I I saw that coming. Uh, it was funny. It was actually it was either late summer. I want to say it was actually early fall semester uh, when the governor of Illinois mandated the jab, uh, and so it was like right when the semester started. So, watch that and um, just been staying online. Um, and technically the mandates are no longer in effect, uh, certainly not in the state of Illinois, I'm pretty sure not federally anymore at this point either for the time being, but I still was not and am not comfortable, uh, with going back until there's some sort of legislation, a bill that explicitly says that they can't, uh, roll it back out. And lo and behold, I'm sure we've all heard some of the uh, speculation about uh, the resurgence of another variant and the possibility of new mandates coming back that doesn't seem to have picked up the momentum that a lot of people uh, speculated on. But uh, it's, you know, it, it at least kind of popped its head up a little bit, which suggests to me that. Still not, still not comfortable with it. So I'm online at, at different schools, and um, yeah, that's just kind of how I'm, I'm kind of treading water there. It's kind of my judo move. I mean, I have to feed the, I have to feed the data monster, but you know, I'm still employed, and I can at least teach some classical rhetoric to the students that take my course, and they can read uh, Brave New World if they're in my 102 course. So I can at least get them some information they otherwise probably wouldn't get. Rock on, man. Yeah, I, I was curi curious how that was going to work with, with the state of Illinois. I'm surprised that they were even lenient on the mandates, but uh, at least you're still teaching, man. You're, you're still spreading knowledge to people, and that's that's a good thing. Kind of today, what I, I want to just kind of briefly just get into, just starting off, 
is you talk about in your book uh, in the first couple chapters um, from cradle to career. And I'm, I'm very curious because the last podcast I had with Caprice, this almost goes hand in hand with that. Um, you see the education system and it, it almost suggests that, and I think it's obvious and people who can't see past it, it, it suggests that what they're creating is workers, lab rats, people who can perform manufacturing jobs, keep the well-oiled machine going. Can you kind of just tell me what it, what it, what is cradle to career? So that's a sort of a buzzword that was created by a guy by the name of Jeffrey Canada. Jeffrey Canada, uh, he started something called the Harlem Children's Zone. And it's sort of a nonprofit uh, alternative education model that uh, has, it largely focuses on what's known as community schools or community schooling. But he also developed two charter schools based on the uh, HZZ or the Harlem Children's Zone models. And I believe they're called uh, Promise Academy is the name of the charter schools. And so his idea was that through various public-private partnerships, uh, either through community school partnerships or charter school partnerships, so I should probably uh, explain the difference between those first. So uh, the charter school is basically, it's a private company that uh, provides educational services, but is subsidized by public tax dollars, whether state or federal. A community school is technically still a public school. Okay, so the charter school doesn't actually have an elected board. It has a corporate board that's appointed by the people that run the company. Uh, the community school still does have an elected board, but part of what makes it a community school and uh, in particular if it's a it's what they call a full service community schooling uh, as stipulated under the every student succeeds act uh, they have to have what are known as pipeline services or otherwise sometimes known as wraparound services and these are going to be public private partnerships between the public school and other private companies that are going to facilitate either workforce training, so uh, funneling the students through career pathways into in-demand industries in the local area, or other public-private partnerships to help with the students' uh, healthcare outcomes, so partnering with other private healthcare institutions. And then they'll also have some uh, what are known as community-oriented policing services uh, that try to mark children or students who are like at risk for becoming uh, falling through the cracks etc and so the community schooling model is supposed to in the way that it was designed by jeffrey canada was to was largely designed for impoverished neighborhoods and it was his goal was that through these various public private partnerships by sort of integrating all these other industries and services into the school that you could uh, lift not just those students out of poverty, but uh, over time you could lift the the neighborhoods themselves out of poverty. So to help facilitate that, he started to create these uh, Promise Academy charter schools. And then actually in the Every Student Succeeds Act, which was uh, signed in by President Obama, there are uh, initiatives or grants facilitated for what are known as promised neighborhoods. And so these promised neighborhoods uh, uh, grants are basically designed to give money to those types of community schooling, charter schooling services that are uh, developed based on the, the uh, HCZ Prime, Promise Academy models. So so when you say that and, and, and all this money is being funneled and it's supposed to be helping and bettering people and communities and lifting those neighborhoods up um, or one student at a time type of thing, 
since you've written the book, have you seen any of those programs do that? Uh, you know, I did a, an interview with, uh, or Daniel Eschelin interviewed me uh, about a month ago. Uh, never posted it for some reason, but he asked me that very same question. Uh, and my answer is no, I have not. <laughs> that is the short answer. Yeah. I mean, you know, in most of these initiatives, um, you know, this is sort of the latest uh, in the so the cradle to career buzzword. Before that, we had uh, terms like school to work uh, or just uh, workforce schooling, workforce training. Uh, and these these have been embedded in the community schooling model actually goes back to the 70s. So uh, and there were some actually some pilots that even earlier than that, uh, late 60s ish. Um, and, you know, the the goal was always that it was going to improve the, the plight of uh, students, whether in terms of workforce outcomes or just educational outcomes generally. And it, it just it just tends to be the case that all of these programs, not only do they not uh, actually achieve the goals that they purport, they often seem to exacerbate the problem. And sometimes, you know, you look at that and you wonder uh, how, how, how that can be sold because any other business model, right? I mean, if you're, if you're doing something repeatedly and getting the opposite outcomes, right, uh, at some point you do a radical overhaul. But uh, it seems that the failures of such programs uh, are often used as the impetus or sort of the evidence that we need to ramp up the same, the same type of programs, um, and, you know, it's hard not to infer that the that therefore the intended aim is sort of a, for lack of a better term, a controlled demolition, right? Just a restructuring of the nature of the schooling to facilitate uh, workforce planning outcomes for the benefit of companies as opposed to the neighborhoods or the children themselves. I, I, I honestly don't know any other way that you could logically look at that continued process and, and, uh, and assess it any differently. So it's almost as if it, it's, it's working and, and it's working the way that they want it to work and they're just throwing money at it to make it seem like they're doing something about something, which really isn't the case. Yeah, yeah, again, yeah, right. So, I mean, again, the main thing here is sort of just the, I mean, the main objective, it appears, is the thorough integration of all sectors of the economy for the purpose of a, a planned economy, uh, centrally planned through public-private corporate government partnerships, right? And so then uh, whatever sort of eggs get broken in making that omelet is just, you know, uh, part and parcel for the course. Yeah. So... When you and these programs exist, they're they're still going on today. I don't know. I'm really not aware of new ones that they come out with or currently what what's in the works. But when you see people like Bill Gates uh, and and other rich people or people who are very wealthy uh, involving themselves and donating money to these charter schools, um, that to me that rings uh, alarm bells or it's a red flag that they're even involved in that. Uh, you would say it's philanthropy and they they have so much money they don't know what to do with it. And, and why not give back to education? Why not give back to the kids? Bill Gates is so good at doing that with vaccines and education, as you state in your book. What really is their hand in public education? Is it is it so sinister or is it or is it just help the kids? Well, I mean, so, you know, the whole Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, their uh, philanthropic in investments in education is just sort of the contemporary iteration of a process that began in the 
mid to late 19th century, starting with uh, such nonprofits, some of the first tax exempt foundations, such as uh, the Peabody Education Fund, uh, Rockefeller General Education Board, Carnegie Advancement uh, for Teaching. Um, and from the get-go, they have pretty much always been involved in sort of uh, transforming the compulsory education system into an in engine of workforce training and workforce planning. Um, so, you know, as far as the Gates Foundation, that's, um, it's been a while since I, I, I actually am doing a, um, well, it's, it's about halfway done. So I'm doing a lecture series through Richard Grove's Autonomy University. And so uh, if you want sort of like a crash course uh, lecture on my book, um, you can go there and uh, you, can, you can get that course. And um, so, I, so I did brush up on some of the earlier chapters. But as far as the Gates Foundation, it's been, it's been a while since I looked at the grants, but I know I went through many, many uh, uh, grants that were handed out by the Gates Foundation, and pretty much every chapter in that book, uh, they pop up in some regard or another. So they've uh, been involved in financing Promise Academies, or, or rather Promise Neighborhoods, um, just charter schools in general, uh, various cradle-to-career initiatives, career pathways initiatives, uh, some of what are known as P20 or P16 councils, which are state-level. Uh, state They're basically clearing houses for various public-private partnerships of the various uh, varieties that I've already laid out. Uh, and then we can also look at some of their investments in uh, adaptive learning courseware and some of the ed tech, but that's sort of going to take us slightly away from the, the uh, topic of sort of charter schooling and community schooling. But uh, in all these instances, you know, what's the common thread is sort of the development of the 21st century workforce, which is necessarily one that is fully integrated into what's now known as the fourth industrial revolution. So uh, in other words, it's not just the facilitation of a planned economy, but in the instance of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? The, the facilitation of a planned economy that's going to pro profit big tech companies like Microsoft, which which he owns. So you could you could see it as, you know, sort of just uh, a longer plan for social engineering that stems, stems back well over a century. Uh, but you could equally look at it as just sort of a way to uh, take their profits, put it into a tax-exempt foundation where they don't have to pay taxes on that. Uh, and then by spending that money back into the economy in ways that basically reinforces their profits uh, and basically funnels that money uh, and, and, and the workforce back into their own uh, advantage, uh, you know, you could just look at it as sort of a, a profit motive. But if you look at the trajectory of the involvement of tax-exempt foundations, nonprofit corporations in education you know, going back well over a century, uh, there, there's clearly uh, a broader social engineering agenda uh, aside from just the profit motive. Yeah, so they can have their cake and they yes. can eat it too. So they're able to – it's insane to me how they have that much of a grip on on something so important where they're able to make a profit 
and then in turn <laughs> just be able to create a workforce so that 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 it can continuously make them profit for generations and generations that's insane i mean it, it's it's brilliant honestly and then and we allow it to happen and that's even crazier but i mean we have people like you who write books about it and expose it and it's just not enough you know there it's just there it's past where we've passed a point of allowance and i don't know if there's any turning back john i really don't yeah i mean um you know these last three years has been pretty crazy uh you know they definitely are going for a great reset and not just torically but i mean even if even if Klaus schwab didn't write that book they didn't use that phrase uh you know, uh, you'd probably just colloquially call it something similar anyways. Honestly, there was there was an interview that I did with um, uh, Ed Opperman. Um, I did a few of them. Um, and a couple times, the audio was messed up. I still have a copy of this audio. Maybe I'll post it on Twitter just to put it out there. But it's you can hear it, but it's like, it's like popping and crackling the whole time. Um, and but he sent me he sent it to me anyways never never posted it on his uh, channel but he asked me something to the effect of it was this was shortly thereafter lockdowns and i used the phrase i said this is the global reset this was before the right the, i think the great great reset was announced i want to say june or july ish that uh, around that year because i remember it was right Right before I did my first interview on uh, Jay Dyer's Jay, Jay's analysis, so I want to, and I'm pretty sure that was in like June or July. Um, so uh, you know, I'd often heard uh, similar phrases sort of uh, tossed about, and people that sort of uh, you know estimated what the trajectory of sort of the the, the goals of the new world order, and uh, so you know that. It's just in, perhaps prescient that I use that phrase uh, shortly before Schwab called for his great reset. And yeah, I mean, um, you know, I mean, all, all I've been able to really suggest in terms of some sort of uh, method to perhaps steer us somewhere away from or at least under the radar of this encroaching global technocracy is to create some sort of parallel structures uh, largely, uh, at least in the in the realm of education, through uh, homeschooling, uh, you know, basically getting out of the government schools and avoiding the virtual charter schools, which would be the online virtual schools that you would basically be bringing in the public-private partnership to your home, um, and you know trying to build some sort of uh, network of co-ops or pods with like-minded uh, families and neighbors and hopefully that can pick up its own momentum and uh, maybe maybe it can sort of culminate in some sort of a parallel system uh, that, that can either exist in opposition to or at least separate from or otherwise under the radar from uh, this this whole fourth industrial revolution system. Well, you know, I guess in this aspect, it makes me wonder, and I'm curious what you think about it. Is obviously with COVID, they tried the, they didn't try every every student was virtually taught for a good year. There was no people in class. I'm sure. There, I mean, there were like uh, private schools that still were in session, but public education was shut down. You were learning from home, and I, I almost think that that 
and you saw that there was a lot of pushback from parents because they created a system where now both parents have to be at work to make money, to fuel the system, to fuel their, just to fuel the lifestyle, or even to have a home and put food on the table, you almost have to have both parents working now. So they create, they created the, the virtual teaching through COVID, but then you get pushback from parents saying, Hey, we need our kids back in school. So do you think they're going to be able to find a balance of where they'll still be able to teach kids virtually in school? I don't know. Does that make sense, that question? Um, who, who do you mean when you say they find a balance? Do you mean the, the parents or no, do you mean the school? The, the, just the system, the beast, whatever it is you want to call it, because they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, like we talked about in other instances, but they can't have kids learning from home because the parents have to be at work working. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they, we... we if you virtually teach them at home, you no longer have a babysitter, essentially, I guess. Yeah, this is true. I mean, and uh, I I have seen some anecdotal examples of parents, that, that being one of their complaints about uh, the virtual homeschooling, uh, is that, right, they, it's sort of, in many ways, unwieldy. Um I would say that the the long-term goal is ultimately going to be that the bulk of the learning is going to be through a device one way or another. And that could be that uh, it could be what's known as the hybrid learning system. So, so you have a fully online system, which is when you'd be right, basically learning from home all the time on your device online through some sort of, learning management systems known as an LMS, some other uh, digital platform. Uh, or then they have what's known as the hybrid learning and the hybrid learning is where you're gonna alternate back and forth. So you're gonna be either uh, you know, three days at school in a, in a brick and mortar building and then two days online and then the next week you'll invert that. So you'll have three days online and two days at home or at the, at the school. Uh, but then they also have what's known as the blended learning model. And the blended learning model is where uh, you're in the school five days a week, but essentially everything you do is facilitated through a device, whether it's a tablet or a laptop. Uh, and the teacher is just going to sort of monitor what you're doing on the computer through a, a dashboard that they have at their front desk. So they can just sort of, sort of remote into your computer or at least look at the analytics, right? What module are you working on? What progress are you making, et cetera? Uh, so it's going to be one of those models. In other words, technology is not going to go away. Uh, I would I would wager that long term, uh, the goal would be to have as much of it done online in your own home as possible and that that goes for uh, work as much as it does for for learning as well um so um i know there's a lot of companies that want people to come back to the offices but the longer we sort of are in this uh, precarious uh scenario both economically and with the sort of the constant omen of a potential lockdown or new variant sort of hovering over everybody there's going to be more and more incentive for companies to not just save money by not having to pay for office space, but uh, not have to deal with the potential, oh, we have to basically uh, upend everything to facilitate, uh, you know, uh, a time frame of lockdown, remote uh, working, remote learning. Um, so I would 
I would wager that, uh, and this would this would integrate uh, perfectly with the community schooling system, which would be that uh, the only time that you really go to the brick and mortar building is to uh, to use one of the wraparound services, right? And so, whether it be for healthcare or a mental health checkup or maybe a, a jab clinic uh, or some sort of a, a intervention for a student that per perhaps uh, based on his uh, online analytics uh, you know is considered to be an at risk for some sort of delinquency uh, or maybe you know the degree that uh, your career pathway puts you on course for a job that does require some sort of on-site labor uh, that you would do some internship or a, or a, some sort of career pathway uh, training on site, but the bulk of the actual coursework would be online through one form or another. So, um, you know, for the for the parents that are not, uh, it's not conducive for them to be at home necessarily monitoring the computer uh, uh, all the time or monitoring the, the children all the time, uh, that could sort of be uh, that inconvenience can sort of uh, be pushed aside as the, the the parents' work becomes increasingly remote as well. That makes complete sense. I didn't, complete sense. I didn't even th I didn't even think about that point because that's eventually what we're leading to as well. But in in saying that, and and isn't th this was just inevitable for this to happen for us to put ourselves in this position and allow technology to progress the way that it has, and it's progressing so fast that we can't. Uh, keep up with technology as human beings and we're allowing these types of things to happen. Um, don't you think it was just inevitable or did we just abuse technology and allow it to overtake our lives and put ourselves in this position? Because John, I don't know about you, man, that, that seems like a scary world for me where we're not interacting with each other. We're literally just on uh, devices, tablets, whatever you want to call it day in and day out at your house, not getting out, not being in public and, and having conversations with people. It, that just seems like a, a scary world. And, and do you, think that's the future of our world well so there's i think there's two answers to that question uh, and one of the answers is that if you're talking about on the consumer end or the workforce end or just the uh you know regular working american end uh or working human end globally um that yeah i mean so we kind of Right to the extent that we sort of sleepwalked into this, uh, you know, with with every new convenient, fun little gadget, you know, we started to use them more and more, and not just use them more and more, and you know, effectively become addicted to the stuff, but to integrate our social lives through the devices, to integrate. Uh, our our jobs, our shopping, right? Like every aspect of the human condition, right? It's not just that we had these fun devices and you know to play games or something, right? Like we've we've very much integrated uh, almost every facet of of life in, into the uh, device, and much of that was done sort of without thinking about the trajectory of where it was going and what could be the potential implications of a day when something like a lockdown happens, right? And, uh, or, a, some, or a day when, you know, we start getting debanked or deplatformed and, and, and suddenly, 
right? It's not just this convenient thing where you sort of streamlined all your contacts and all your activities onto this mobile computer, but now you're dependent on it, right? And the moment that, um, you know, somebody, uh, for whatever reason, maybe deplatforms you or something, you have an online business, uh, or in the in the instance of a lockdown where you're you're stuck on this thing whether you like it or not, uh, that in many ways was you know we all built that system, some some perhaps more than others. Like I I, I personally never had a social media until I published my book, which was only about four months before lockdowns, and I I got my social media purely for the uh, purpose of you know. The, getting the getting it out and disseminating it etc um but on the other end if you're talking about sort of the architects of the system um they theoretically saw the trajectory of this going back at least to the macy cybernetics conferences in the it would be the late 40s early 50s spanning that time frame when you had people like um uh, Gregory Bateson and uh, Norbert Wiener and um, uh, other other cyberneticians you know, building on sort of some of the theoretical frameworks of uh, people like John von Neumann and uh, you know, Alan Turing uh, and just sort of uh, theoretically understanding that right if you can sort of you can quantify everything in terms of a binary code and you can create a system that can not just quantify it but create a feedback loop where it can sort of track it in real time and can uh, sort of make adjustments on those analytics in real time that all you really needed was the development of the transistors transistors and the computing power to get smaller and smaller and more efficient enough to where you could move from having these humongous supercomputers to basically, right, you could, once you could get them mobile, you could have them in someone's hand, uh, you could ostensibly track everything that everybody does all the time. You could facilitate all communications through it. You could facilitate all of your commerce through it. Uh, eventually, you could find ways through biometrics and psychometrics to quantify not just where a person is uh, and who they're talking to and, and what they're doing in a given moment, but you could sort of infer what are they thinking and even what are they feeling. And so that, I mean, from the get-go, right, from the, from the very beginning that we knew that we could um, create, you know, the the impetus or sort of move towards the trajectory of what would become artificial intelligence, uh, you know, they all, they knew that uh, this would be essentially the, the end game or, or this, this would be sort of the outcome eventually. And, and I remember, so you can look at a book like uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's uh, Between Two Ages, something about the technotronic era. I forget the whole title, but the, the main title is Between Two Ages and something about the technotronic era. Um, and, I, and I go through it in my book. Um, but he, this was 70s, I want to say early 70s. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was 68 or 69. It's back there. I'm not going to roll back there and grab it just to check the date. But uh, late 60s, early 70s. Okay. And in there, he talks about how 
eventually, because he's basically forecasting what the you know future economy globally is going to look like uh, as what he called technotronics, right? Sort of the uh, this is sort of the precursor to what's now the fourth industrial revolution, but the convergence of the electrical revolution with the digital revolution and right the, the emergence of the of the modern computer. That uh, a he says that most of your education will will be uh, there'll be an integration of private corporate business interests in helping to facilitate that. That there would be integrated increasingly. Uh, what the what the United Nations uh, Educational Scientific and Cultural Organization UNESCO calls lifelong learning, and that you'd have frequent periods of retraining to be recalibrated for the economy as it right evolves into this increasingly digital economy, and that this, the actual courses themselves would be facilitated through. I uh, forget the phrase he uses. It's not computers because we're not quite there yet, but it's something like. Uh, remote technologies through the home. Okay, and this is in the again, this is late sixties, early seventies. Uh, B. F. Skinner came up with the idea of a teaching machine, an analog teaching machine that could basically uh, track a student into either honors or career pathways or remediation based on uh, basically con- operant conditioning algorithms. So basically psychometrics, um, and this becomes the modern adaptive learning courseware. And then when Charlotte was, uh, Charlotte Thompson is she's my mentor. Uh, she, she died uh, last year, uh, February, wrote the forward to my book, uh, gave me every, pretty much everything you see back there. I'd say 90, certainly 90 plus percent, maybe 99 plus percent of the books behind me were hers. Um, and there was a story she told me, and I, I, I just wish I would have uh, took more notes uh, on some, some of the names and places and things, because a lot of stories she would tell, you know, repeatedly, and I would always, I would always listen, and, and I'd enjoy listening every single time, uh, you know, it never got old for me. Uh, and, and because of that, though, some of these stories I just... I guess I took for granted that I that I would always remember them, but now that I try to go back and remember some of the names, uh, I get foggy and uh, can't can't call her up and ask her. Um, but there was a guy that when she was in the department, I don't want I don't want I, I don't want to hazard a, a a name and get it wrong, but there's a couple people I can think of. Uh, one of the guys was Arthur Melmed. I don't think it was Arthur. I want to say it was a guy by the name of Malcolm something, but I, I still am not sure. But he was, she was looking at, so this is in the 80s, right? So this had to be between 1980 and 1981 because the 81 was when she leaked Project Best Basic Education Skills Through Technology, which was uh, this big technology program. Uh, the set of public-private partnerships between big tech companies and uh, Department of Education and local schools to integrate computer learning that would utilize the Skinner's operant conditioning algorithms. Uh, so sometime during there that she's in the office and she's sort of uh, looking through some of the files and talking with different people about the trajectory of everything, and uh, there was a curriculum, and I re- this I remember, she said it was an NEA curriculum, National Education Association, right, this is the largest teachers union in the United States, I believe it's the largest union period in the United States, um, this is interesting to note here too, because, um, you know, the, the NEA is, 
you know, very much a left-wing organization, right? Always votes for the Democratic Party. But this was, right, she was working in the Department of Education under Ronald Reagan, which is obviously, right, this is a Republican right-wing administration. Um, and they were uh, looking at what the NEA had developed was one of the uh, first sort of uh, computerized, uh, it was a math curriculum, she said. And she said something like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of neat. Like, you know, you, you, uh, you could do that. You, you wouldn't even need to go to a school for that. You could do that at home. And the guy said, Charlotte, in the future, all learning will take place in the home. And she told me that story several times, right? Um, she also told me that this, now this I do know was Arthur Melman. Uh, he was one of the assistants to the assistant secretary. So she, so in the Department of Education, right, you had the Secretary of Education. And then you have a bunch of assistant secretaries. And then you have, like, deputy assistants. And then you have, like, uh, special advisors and staff, okay? So Charlotte was a special advisor under assistant secretary Donald Sinise. And another, I don't remember what Arthur Melman's um, position was, but I got tons of uh, memorandums and stuff from when she was there. What you don't see in here are, uh, I think it's six, six lobster crates. So about yay long about yay tall right if i stack them up they'd be taller than me in here and i got a bunch yeah. of communications between them but what arthur melman said she said when they used to go they got to lunch and he, she said at the time i i you know i listened but it didn't really register with me because it just sounded so fantastic but she said that arthur melman used to go on and on about ai and robots and automation and, and everything else and again this is in the 80s Right. And so uh, I would say that as much as uh, everybody sort of right uh, on the on the receiving end, on the uh, user end of the technology, basically built the system uh, uh, without knowing it by right by integrating their lives into it. Uh, the people who designed it, the architects, the engineers, I'm pretty, they essentially saw. Right, the outcome, and if you look at somebody like Ray Kurzweil and uh, his analysis of what's known as the law of accelerating returns and Moore's law, it's this idea of right. You could you could calculate uh, sort of this is this is why Kurzweil has specific dates for these different flashpoints in the evolution of technology leading up to the to the singularity, which is that you could look at the rate of uh, exponential uh, computing power uh, evolving through the uh, transistor development, right? And so over time, right, you could double the, the capacity in X amount of time, and then you could double that in about half the time. Then you can double that, right? And, and you could keep doubling it. And so you could look, right, again, going back to the Macy Cybernetics Congresses and say, round 2020-ish, 2000-ish, right? We're going to get to this sort of flashpoint where uh, we'll be right on the cusp of the singularity that will start from 2030, 2040, right? So there's there's both of those things uh, going on at the same time. Yeah. And, and uh, like I said, man, I don't think that there's any stopping it. When you go shopping, when you go out to restaurants, um, even whenever you're in your own house, man, and I finally, I finally caught myself doing this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I and I knew I was doing it subconsciously. I knew it was there. I knew it was an issue, and I've always had a problem with it because I've had a cell phone since I was fifteen, man. So I'm I'm going on fifteen, 
uh, 19 years of having a cell phone. I mean, it, that's my whole adult life. I'm still not a man yet. I'm trying to become a man and I'm getting better at that. Um, and I've never not been without my phone. It's always been there for me. It's always been there when I needed it. Anytime I need information, it's always, it's always been there. So John, the past, like I, I'm going on two weeks, man. I've, I've limited myself to cell phone usage to probably under like 20 minutes total each day, minus like texting my wife, you know what I'm saying? Or friends and family. And I'll be honest with you, man. Like it's probably one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. Now, I, what it's done to me, like to my psychology now, it's just like when I get on my phone and I'm on there and I want to click on the apps that I normally would click on, but you know, two weeks ago, like, I don't even want to do that, man. Like I, I've lost, I've lost, I've lost my touch with it or whatever you want to call it. And I'm not saying that I won't go back to it or get addicted to it again. I don't want to, but I just feel like, man, technology is not everything. Nature is way more beautiful. There's so much more to offer in life than what this is, you know, and, and I'm finally seeing it at 34 years old, man. It's just nuts. It's crazy. Even when I turn on a movie, man, and I'm watching a movie, I'm very disinterested. I don't really want to watch it. I'm just like, what's the point? I'm like, I could be outside doing something, you know, that's more productive. But anyways, I mean, you can put some thoughts on that, but I guess through this, this 10 minute conversation we're having, is it, is the, the end goal, the end of consciousness? Is that kind of what you're seeing happening? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I've I, I part of me wants to answer your first question. And then yeah, that's fine. Want, that's part cool. of me. Part of me is uh, afraid that I'll forget the second one. So remind me if um, will do. Right, remind me if I if I uh, if I can't if I can't thread them both together. Yeah. But um, yeah, I remember when I was in college and. Uh, yeah, obviously, you know, didn't have a whole lot of money in college. And at one point, um, what I did was I, I got rid of my cable subscriptions. I figured, right, I can save whatever it was. I don't know, 70, 100 bucks a month or something. And at first, it was kind of, uh, you know, you're used to, because I would always, I, was, I grew up with constant, you know, video games and TV. And so when I would... Uh, I was one of these people that liked to have it on in the background, even if I wasn't watching it, right? Something about that ambient noise, right? Uh, was like, without it, it was uh, it was like another layer of anxiety, you know, that, that subsided pretty quickly. Um, and I had a similar experience, with, which was that you had, which was uh, when I finally would come come back home for the, uh, you know, in between semesters, and. Uh, I just, I did not want to, the, the TV was like this thing that like, you know, uh, sort of, I don't want to say hypnotize you, but you know, I would go home and I'd be like ready to talk to everybody. Oh, I haven't seen anybody. And you'd sit down and like, instead of, you know, you got the couches in the room that are facing each other, but everyone's facing the TV. And I just remember like that being like, you know, if you're not, uh, if you don't remove yourself from it, you don't, you don't, it doesn't, it just seems like something to do, right? But I just remember feeling like, and there was no way to communicate, like, let's turn this off and just like have a conversation. But uh, to your point about the whole devices and sort of the addictive quality, I mean, these are design, right? I mean, like, I think Facebook has admitted as much that, uh, 
we don't just engineer these things uh, to be fun and entertaining. Like we've done the brain science, right, and the operating conditioning, the behavioral psychology to know, right, what, how can we make it addictive, right, in essentially a physiological manner, right? Like so, the dopamine hits that you get from the likes and things like that, or the nature of, right, if you're scrolling, uh, you're not. If you want to center a particular post so that you can see the whole thing you can't do that without seeing right the top of the next one right and so basically uh being um sort of intrigued right by the next one because you know you might think i'll just look at one more post and you look at that one and maybe that one wasn't maybe you're looking at some funny memes or something Ah, that one wasn't too funny one more one more one more one more one more right right and then and you know, whatever, uh, whatever that, whatever dopamine triggers you, you might get from those. It's very much uh, like junk food or a drug or something to the extent that, right? It, it it's not a sustaining uh, uh, neurotransmitter. It's, it's not like the deferred gratification, right, that you get from completing a long creative project or. Uh, you know, uh, a long workout that right is building on your stamina and your and your your overall health, right? Whereas, in other words, when the project is completed, right, the sort of the the, the neurochemical satisfaction that you get, right, carries on for quite quite some time. Versus, right, the the neurotransmitter chemical uh, pleasure that you get from a click or a like is right. It's over. It's just like, a, just like candy or a drug or something. Right. It's, and, and the more you do it, the more you need it. And then, right. It, it almost creates, uh, as much uneasiness as it does, uh, the, the pleasure of whatever you get when you, when you see your, your clicks or your likes. Um, and so you could, I guess you could look at that as part of this idea of, the end of consciousness. I mean, it certainly, uh, it certainly uh, makes the human psyche want to cleave to the device in a way that uh, sort of moves us towards the what they what the transhumanists hope to achieve, which is this uh, essentially the singularity, this merger of uh, human biology with uh, digital technology and you know, when I, I, I believe you're sort of reference, referencing one of the uh, titles of one of the last chapters in the book. And if you sort of, I mean, and, and I kind of inferred this much um, before I even really dug deep into the history of AI and sort of uh, the contemporary development where we're at in that trajectory and then forecasting into the future. I had just worked for an, uh, an online tutoring company and they wanted IBM's Watson to pilot with us or to co-pilot with us. In other words, this thing's going to data mine what I'm doing and it's going to come up with some algorithms so that it can do the same thing. And it was at that point that I sort of, you know, kind of extrapolated out into the future and said, okay, now hold on. Uh, so not only am I sort of uh, training this thing to replace me, you have to think, right? Most people are sort of concerned that uh, 
automation when we think about the, the uh, automation of the workforce, we largely think about, you know, the types of robots we see in an automotive factory or something, right? And, th and this is the main uh, thing that they um, throw out there as it's going to be a, a, a positive development, right? So, so you won't have to do all these menial, heavy lifting, hard labor, dangerous types of jobs, right? But don't worry because, right, the human mind and the human creativity will always have a place uh, this is just going to get rid of all that sort of mindless, menial, manual labor. Okay, uh, and there's a whole I, I could we could have a whole conversation about the the sort of the fallacies and the presuppositions that are ingrained in, in that notion itself. But but it's actually not going with that. We'll just go with with that framework as for the sake of argument. If you look at something like IBM's Watson replacing the job of a teacher or a tutor. You're talking about the automation of intellectual labor. You're talking about the automation of cognition, okay? So if IBM's Watson can replace the teacher, not only does not only does the teacher become obsolete, but doesn't the student become obsolete as well? Because if you can train AI to do what the teacher can do in terms of intellectual or cognitive labor, then you could train AI to do whatever the student could do, right? And at that point, right, so at, at this point, this is where someone like Elon Musk says, well, this is where we need Neuralink uh, because we need to then integrate or interface with um, this, this emergement, um, these emerging large language models, right, the sort of the GPT style uh, generative pre-training uh, algorithms. And... Uh, that that's that at that point, right? If 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 it works in the way that they purport that it will, uh, essentially, you would be sort of having uh, a, a sort of a Google, right? But uh, sort of an interactive Google that you could sort of uh, call upon, right? Uh, in in your own consciousness at any. At any point, this would this would be the only way that you could sort of. Uh, he says, if you can't beat it, join it, right? So if so if this so if AI can do everything more efficiently, well, perhaps if you had sort of like um, uh, this AI assistant embedded into your own cognition, kind of like uh, the Iron Man suit, I think it's called Jarvis or something, right? Like yeah. it gives it gives uh, whatever the character's name is, right? He, he can enhance his 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 analytics right and it can also suggest do this don't do that type of thing um but at that point now we're talking about right how much of your consciousness is your consciousness right i mean right so uh, clearly right once we've if we've interfaced uh with with these programs uh at what point are is the if you could sort of just, you know, build sort of like a pie graph, right? And you could maybe split it down the middle where your half, half of your thoughts are yours and half of yours are AI, right? At what point, though, does sort of the eclipse happen in which, right, the bulk of what we consider to be human consciousness or some sort of cognitive uh, process occurring within uh, the brain chemistry is, is essentially... Uh, rounded in or is just an extension of 
programming. So at that point, right, uh, we, if we keep going down this trajectory, you would you would essentially uh, we, we you could say that it would be if you wanted to use Kurzweil term. Well, we've just evolved into a new consciousness, but this new consciousness would would effectively have essentially no resemblance or 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 no uh, sort of remnants of what we understand as as human consciousness. At that point, you would be not just transhuman. But the term that's often used, sometimes synonymously, but other times it's thought of as distinct from transhumanism, and that is posthumanism. And the only other time we use that term, the root of that term is when we when we say uh, posthumous, right, or posthumous, meaning dead, right. And so at this point, right, that you would, I don't know of any other way to conceive of it as other than uh, the end of consciousness, right. So whether you want to, whether you want to say that it's a it's an evolution into a new consciousness or just right the the taking over of an old consciousness uh, i think is the semantic point right and in one way or another you you what you understand as human consciousness will be fundamentally uh inverted or overwritten man that's some deep shit that's so deep, deep. i just i just you think you really think that Elon Musk is going to be successful with Neuralink? Do you think that he's going to be able to 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 do what you just described, where that they can implant something into your brain to where it can take over half your consciousness and then do an eclipse to where it eventually consumes what it is and who it is you are as a person? And I don't even think we fully understand consciousness. I mean, I know we've poured billions and billions of dollars into the brain and trying to understand what it is. But even my own self, man, like I don't fully understand myself yet. And and I think that's the purpose of life is to have the journey to figure out who you are. And even most people, when they die, they still don't know who they are. So, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with Western society, Western culture. I think there are other places on this planet where they have it, in my opinion, more right than we do when it comes to understanding what life is. It's not about consuming. It's about being, I know this is going to sound hippie of me, but it's it's to be with nature to be with your loved ones, find your soulmate, um, experience life with that person, those types of things. You know what I'm saying, John? So it's like, and it, I just, I just, it's scary, man, at that point. And I know you talk about like po- our transhumanism or post humans, but it's like, I don't think that this is a natural progression for human beings for evolution. And I don't necessarily know if there is an evolution for humans uh, over time, we, we evolve into something else than what we are now. But Technology is not, or the fourth industrial revolution is not a good thing for human beings. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things, mate, you sort of, a few lights went off. Uh, I'm trying to figure out which one I should uh, start with and uh, try to try to touch on all of them. Uh, let's just, let's just, I guess I'll just start anywhere. Um, so... As far as will they, do I think they could, do I think the sort of the, the theory of the apex of the evolution of AI in the, in the interface or the uh, merger of the, the human brain with the AI, do I think that it could, it could ever get to this point that I just described in the sort of like Jarvis example? I, I, Sometimes I don't know how much they believe their own hype. Uh, sometimes I wonder if a lot of it is hype just to sort of have us so in awe of the magical powers of their 
uh, all-seeing, all-knowing technology that we will uh, willingly interface with it, right? Not just to be, uh, whether it be for the sake of, oh, you know, you'll have all this extra brain power or, you know, as some of these people think that, well, you can maybe one day, if we track all your thoughts and we scan your brain with your brain-computer interface, well, we could copy your consciousness and you could live forever in the computer. And this is something that people like Ray Kurzweil talk about. Uh, do I... Do I think that they really believe that if you did that, that whatever whatever they copied into the into a program, uh, even if it even if through through robotics or synthetic biology or just like as an avatar in virtual reality, if it looked exactly like me and had all the mannerisms that I have, uh, it could it could match my inflection and my intonation and, and all of the idiosyncrasies and nuances in there in such a way that it appears to be conscious. I I personally think that it would actually just be like a really, really complex GIF, right? You know, those images, the GIF images that, right? Uh, typically it's, right, it's do it's doing one one motion, one or two motions, right, on, on a loop, right? Uh, so take that and then now add another motion to it and add another one and add another one and keep adding them and adding them and adding them. And then for each of those, maybe it has an arm movement, maybe it has a leg movement. And then take the arm movement and break that down into all the different arm movements and then break that down into, right, I've got my fingers here, I've got my fingers here, I've got my fingers, right, all the little nuances you could have, right, all the different, uh, in other words, you, you would have this expansive set of sort of uh, boilerplate uh, pre-programmed responses, but it could it could pick and choose from those pre-programmed responses based on its scanning of your own who or whatever it's interacting with, right? Based on reading the facial expression, maybe based on reading the EEGs or the, the heart rate or just responding to the language that you're presenting to it that you could pick from this huge array of pre-programmed responses in such a way that it seems organic, that it seems natural, that it seems like it's a, it's that it, you, like you never noticed the same response because there was just enough nuance to seem like, right. What a human being does, which is uh, never, never perfect. Right. Like I think of, you know, if you've ever, uh, if you ever make any music, if you've ever done live music, and then you've done electronic music with like an MPC, shows you how old I am, I guess, because those are probably, you know, uh, probably few people use an MPC anymore. But if you use an MPC and you use the timing correct for the drum kit, right, the drums are perfectly on the, whether it be the quarter note or the half note or the eighth note, uh, right, in whatever time signature you're using. Versus if you do a live band, right, you're never perfectly on it. You can get pretty close, but you're never perfectly on it, right? And and that has, if for someone that's, right, uh, studied music, listened to a lot of it, and messed with both, you can hear it, right, just subtly, right? Uh, but for somebody that grew up with nothing but interacting with virtual mediums, avatars, AI, talking to, uh, you know, having conversations with chat and GPT, they have a... Uh, 
they have a moxie robot now which is it's for kids it's supposed to help with social emotional learning looks it's uh, designed by uh people from pixar and jim henson studios so it's it's a cute little uh, machine elf looking thing uh but the kids can literally like it'll you know give them hugs and you can talk to it right if if you grew up right interacting with that type of uh we'll just say humanoid ai uh you, you, whereas perhaps maybe somebody that grew up actually interacting with, right, flesh and blood humans might be able to notice, right, like, eh, I, I can see, right, just like, just like you can, you can almost, you can hear it, the difference between the, the, the electronic music and the, and the orchestral music, but if you grew up in it, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really uh, notice it. Now, you would never know whether the thing is conscious, because if you asked it and it told you, Right. Uh, you just have to take your word for it. The only way you would ever know if it's conscious is if you yourself had your brain scanned and put in there. And then, right, you being in the machine might know that. But anybody that hasn't gone through that process isn't going to be able to verify that based on your testimony. Right. Like if, if you think of uh, and this story gets to what you're saying about the nature of consciousness. Right. Like for the for the AI technocrat. They have to be able to reduce consciousness to algorithms, right? To uh, to cognitive, verbal, kinesthetic, emotional responses to various environmental stimuli, in order to break it down into uh, sort of if-then programming loops, right? If if this stimulus. Uh, is encountered by the AI, then the AI produces this response in any of those given categories or a combination of, right? So cognitive, emotional, or kinesthetic. Um, and if you think of, so if you go to the doctor, right, and they've got the, and, and they want to know how much pain you're in, technically you could put like a sensor on there, right? And you could, right, you could see nerve activity, okay? But for one person, the nerve activity might not be as painful as the other person, right? In other words, if you graft it on a computer, the spike that shows up, some one person might say "ow" when the spike is halfway to the top. Somebody might not. Some people might not say "ow" until it's all the way up at the top. I've I've got uh, some problems with my hands from that dummy there, which is I. A lot of times I, I'll mess with it and I don't put the, it's called dip that jow. You're supposed to, it's a, it's a liniment so that you don't get calcium deposits and stuff like that. And most of the time I I just, you know, whatever, I walk past it and I start messing with it. Next thing you know, I'm on it for 10 minutes. And so I've got some knots in here. And I used to, and before lockdowns, I had a friend at the gym, the massage therapist, and he would, you know, basically grind this knot out that I have in my hand. He, he would always say, he's like, he's like, you got a really strong pain tolerance because most people like, you know, I, I know I can feel the knot. I know it hurts. Like, he's like, most people would be telling me to stop. I'm telling him like, like get it, <laughs> get it out of there. You know what I'm saying? So the only way, that's why when you go to the doctor, it's got the, you know, one to 10 smiley face, sad face. Right. The only way they're going to know whether or not something hurts is if you tell them. Right. Like, in other words, there's ways you could measure the neural activity, but that doesn't actually tell them if it hurts. Right. It, it, that state of that state of consciousness. Right. 
in the same way with the programming, right? If you were to upload your stuff, like, I don't know uh, that you would ever know. And I don't know that they would ever know, but if I'm able to think that, unless they have a totally nihilistic outlook on what is consciousness and what is the human species, which, which I would surmise that they do, uh, you would have to actually probably lean towards, no, it would never be conscious. And then you would guess that the whole, the hype around that is nothing more than to get you to want to interface with it and integrate with it. so that you're not left behind. Right. Um, and so, uh, I think in the early stages, uh, right now, the brain-computer interface, the main uses are for like Parkinson's syndrome, epilepsy. Uh, I think they've got some that can you can use for people that are paralytic so that they can read and write uh, on a computer. Uh, I think they might even have some that can bypass. Uh, you can you can hook it. You can get some limited range of motion uh, in in limbs so they can bypass the severed point in the the spine and then run the run the run the brain signal into the limb um but as far as like enhancing cognition i don't think that's any i don't think we're very close to that yet i would think that the first steps would you basically be something like it would just be like an autocorrect like you have on a on a phone or an email and so right this thing might just kind of suggest things if you're if you're kind of stuck in your thoughts uh uh, or if you're wanting to look up an answer to a question, maybe you could, right, it could give you an auto-suggestion or something like that. That's what I would guess. Uh, I wouldn't think that it would be necessarily, you know, almost like a second entity living in there. Uh, but if you look at, if you, if you hear people like, you know, Joe Rogan uh, has talked about this a few times. He seems to be pretty, uh, pretty excited about a lot of the brain-computer interface stuff. Um, and he suggested one time, he's like, well, with, with, with the right, you know, type of technologies, brain computer interface, we could basically be telepathic. And, and Elon Musk has even said that, right, that eventually the, the interface between AI and the brain, the, the language as we know it, right, textual written language, perhaps even verbal language would become obsolete. And this sort of dovetails or, or overlaps of what Rogan uh, speculates is that you'd basically be able to, uh, it's like telepathy. And he was like, you know, instead of me trying to use these words that are imprecise and then you trying to figure out what I mean and then sometimes us miscommunicating and maybe, right, maybe the social friction that happens from that could be bypassed because you would just know what I intend. You would know what I mean. And just, again, back to your point about sort of the what i would consider the spiritual or metaphysical nature or essence of consciousness which is not algorithmic um in many ways i mean you know for lack of a better word we're gonna it, it, as much as we can we can infer things about it it's it's going to be ultimately ineffable because because of that nature uh but that is that i don't think that's ever achievable either because anybody that spent a lot of time thinking about anything if you spend a lot of time in a state of introspection you will notice that oftentimes you don't know what you're trying to say until after you've said it and then thought about what you've said and then corrected it or sometimes you can't you don't even get that far right if you if you really quiet the mind as much as possible and you look within you're there it's not one there's not a one thought there right that
inner monologue is oftentimes juggling two or three different things, right? You know, uh, what am I going to wear today? What am I going to eat today, right? It's not just this linear, right, stimulus response thing. And it's it's somewhere, I think, in between, right, all these different perspectives that we can entertain, all these, all the different stimuli that we can process, that there is a core or an essence to what is what is consciousness, what is the soul, what is the human being, uh, that is not that will never be reducible to an algorithm. And and to to try to do so would necessarily you would have to know would whether successfully or not, whether for better or for worse. Would ultimately have to be essentially the end of consciousness. It would have to be an outcome in which that thing, however ineffable, uh, that that is the core of the, of the soul and consciousness, would be totally replaced by this just this sort of in, this ubiquity of stimulus response algorithms. And if and if you were to follow that trajectory intentionally, I would have to again assume that you're a nihilist and that whether it's your intention to effectively wipe out the consciousness, the soul, the, the, the human condition, as we know it, whether it's your intention or not, you would have to know that uh, that would be the outcome. And so whether you're essentially a nihilist, just a meaningless, you know, have, have a meaningless outlook and you just want to per- pursue the novelty of this new technology just to see where it goes or you actively want to essentially destroy, overwrite, erase humanity itself is sort of again a semantic point to me. <clears throat> yeah, no, I'm right there with you, man. Yeah, it's deep, right you, man. deep shit, it's John. Deep. But at the uh, end of the hour, man. So I, sorry, I got to get to it. I got, I got to work tonight. I got to sling some drinks and bar too. Two hours, dude. I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, yeah, they got to get the kids ready and all that good stuff. So. Um, I'm down to do another podcast, man, here soon. If you have time, I know you're probably busy, but I miss talking to you, man. And and there's just a lot more that needs to be said, dude. I wanted to get into skull and bones today. I I wanted to do that in the first podcast I ever did with you. Neither time did we get into that, man. So I'd love to have you back on soon, uh, to talk about that. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll leave you with this. So next time, if you want to do it another time. These are the physical. These are the physical catalogs. I've got a document cam, but I'm not gonna bother to click on it. These are the actual catalogs that Char- Charlie gave me. Like I said, she gave me her life's work. So, uh, but these are the physicals, right? These are the actual books that she gave Anthony Sutton that he used to. Uh, do all his research on the order of skull and bones so. dude yeah so would, yeah anytime i would love to man i'll, I'll reach out to you in an email here in the next couple of weeks um uh, again man I, I yeah i just whenever you have time so I'll, I'll email you we'll pick out a date and time soon and, and next podcast man it's strictly skull and bones all right sounds good man rock on so where can people find you i know you say you don't upload a lot anymore but where can people find you find your book i'll put the links all down below i don't know if you have any plugs or anything that you wanted to do uh, main place is just go to schoolworldorder.info and then it's got all my uh, social media on there. Uh, all my articles, most of my interviews, I'm slow on updating and uploading. Uh, if you want to contact me, the best way to contact me is always through email. Um, if you if you try to get a hold of me through Telegram or Twitter, I'm probably going to take longer because I'm not on those every day. But my email, I check every day. 
So if you want to get a hold of me, that's that's how to do it. And like I said, everything is there on uh, schoolworldorder.info. John, man, I appreciate you, brother. You have a good one. You too, buddy. Cheers. Uh,